This is Passing for Normal, conversations with authors, artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMO seeds you'll ever read. But mostly, it's about everyday courage and what it takes to get there in your own personal, even unconventional way. So join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Welcome to Passing for Normal. Today, my fascinating guest is Amber Gray, psychotherapist, movement therapist, and public health professional. Amber has been working clinically with survivors of organized violence, torture, war, and combat-related trauma, ritual abuse, domestic violence, and community violence for over 20 years. She provides training worldwide to professionals and paraprofessionals who work with survivors of extreme interpersonal and social trauma who wish to integrate somatic movement, mindfulness, and creative arts-based therapies into their work. She also works with governmental and non-governmental organizations responding to disasters and complex humanitarian emergencies to develop and sustain staff care programs for their team. Amber is tireless in how she offers herself and has an enormous resource to offer some of the most troubled people in the world. Welcome, Amber. Thank you, Sharon. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with you and for you to be able to um, just share all that you do and all that you know with uh, the listening audience and um, and in particular to share your perspective because the kind of work that you're doing is, um, oh, you know, it's very it's very hard. <laughs> it's very deep yeah. and very hard. Yep. Yeah. Um, I just want people to know that you and I share a long connection as teachers of the uh, fluid somatic practice of continuum. And um, I just have such a deep respect for you and such a deep regard for the work that you do. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do? Absolutely. I I like to categorize my work um just to just to make it a little bit easier to describe so i'm i'm a i'm a clinician i'm a mental health professional i'm an educator and trainer and i'm a program organizer i set up programs i've managed programs and directed programs and the focus of all those attentions has been working with survivors of human rights abuses so whether it's you know on the spectrum from um, ritual abuse, domestic violence, um, all to people who've survived political torture, everything that I do falls into that, I would say, lar- it's a large spectrum of human rights abuses. And as a clinician, I'm I'm a, both a mainstream mental health professional and a dance movement therapist, somatic um, psychotherapist. I integrate continued movement in, in all this work. As an educator trainer, I work with psychiatrists, psychologists, paraprofessionals, physiotherapists, body workers um, in places I've trained in Darfur, in the Middle, in the Middle East, in uh, Lebanon, Syria, um, people who want to integrate body-based therapies or creative arts therapies into their work. Um, 
And then I also have set up programs. A lot of my work is, is helping humanitarian responders, helping organizations who send humanitarian responders into both disaster zones and complex humanitarian emergencies, um, programs to protect them because we, we now recognize that anybody doing this work in these contexts often um, they suffer. They suffer just as the victims and, or survivors, um, and that's mm-hmm. an interesting distinction, but victims and survivors, just as they suffer, there's a, when, when we expose ourselves to other suffering, we increase um, the probability that we'll experience some some deeper suffering. And so setting up mm-hmm. programs for the for people doing that work. So it's a broad spectrum um, that really focuses on human rights. Yeah, that's... Um... That's beautiful. And so how, because, you know, so much of what you, uh, in addition to the clinical work that you're doing, you say you bring in um, somatic therapies, body-based therapies, and a body-based perspective. So how is that different, and what is that contributing? Well, and it's interesting, because as I, as listening to your question, Sharon, and reflecting on what I said, um, it's interesting that I said mainstream therapist first because I actually um, I'm going to rewind a bit. The the I think the most fundamental, the foundation of my work, what's most fundamental is the body. And mm-hmm. in in a lot of my trainings, I often get asked to almost defend these quote unquote alternative therapies that are body based or creative arts based. And the reality is, they're not alternative. There is no alternative. We um, as you know, in in life we inhabit our bodies. However, whether we look at things mentally or emotionally or spiritually, spiritually, physically, we're inhabiting our bodies. It's a site of all human experience. So, I I think I would revise what I what, what I said to say that <laughs> I am a body based therapist. My training is in somatic psychology and dance therapy. I have the mainstream credentials because we live in a world where um, those are privileged. And it was important to get that to open doors so that um, I could bring the kind of work, you know, the psychotherapies and therapies and movement practices and mindfulness practices that are rooted in the reality, the day-to-day reality and the truth of the human body so that I could bring this into context that tend to favor more mainstream approaches. So right, that's, that's um, the passing for normal aspect of what you do. You know, the show is called Passing for Normal, and that is the passing right. for normal aspect of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, our, I would say our, share, you know, Emily Conrad, our teacher, you know, I used to joke with her and say, as she often would say, she wanted the teachers to be spies. And I was like, no, I'm a mercenary. I go in under the radar the way that we, I think I present the work, I, I ground the body-based therapies and a lot of the neuroscience that's very current and link them to theories, um, basic developmental psychology theories, public health theory, whatever it is, and then people go, oh, okay, yeah, how could we do this without our bodies? Because the truth is we can't because um, we live in them. <laughs> right. So how, what would you say about how trauma affects the body well um it's it's trauma is a body-based experience and what i often say when i'm describing what being traumatized is is that it is living in a body that includes 
all um, the entire continuum of human experience from sensation and physicality to the most transpersonal experiences, um, it's living in a body that is locked down in fear or terror. And there is a, there is a difference. I've observed a difference in, um, you know, how that lockdown occurs depending upon whether what a person experienced in the moment of exposure, which means when something happened, whether it was a disaster or a human rights abuse. Um, there is also a continuum between fear and terror. So it's when the body remains locked down, has not been able to move from the physiological, neurological, hormonal, physical changes that occur in that moment. They they have to occur, and it's it's to be celebrated that things change because they change in the name of survival. Um, what's challenging with trauma, which doesn't really refer to the experience, but to the impact that it has long-term mm-hmm. on the human the human body, is that, as I said, uh, we don't move on from fear. And so for whatever reason, whether it's the intensity, the, the number of exposures, um, the lack of support after, the lo- maybe there's also huge loss of community or supports, um, inaccessibility to the, to the right kind of support, um, a person or people remain locked down in the state of fear and it begins to color their perception of the world and affect the way that they feel and move and breathe. And, and breath is actually a great marker. Often what I see in people who are traumatized is that the imprint of how they um, didn't breathe in the moment of fear or shock or terror, the, mm-hmm. you know, if I don't know if you can hear yes. that, literally you can see it and, and sense it in, in where the breath doesn't move and how shallow it is. or So it leaves an imprint on the body. And, um, you know, what I say is, is to working with, and I think this relates to the idea of change, is physiological state has to shift in order to create the space for emotional, psychological states to shift. It, uh, we cannot shift out of these states of fear without shifting physiologically. Mm, I'd like you to say that again. Just say that again because it's so important. Physiological state shifts are necessary to create the spaciousness for psychological, emotional, mental, spiritual state shifts. We cannot shift our the way we feel, perceive, um, move, or think if we don't experience a physiological state shift. And so, you know, you are um, dealing with so many different kinds of human, what you're calling human rights abuse. Do you feel that um, that the work is the same for each kind of um, each kind of trauma or each kind of incident? That's a really interesting question, and I think I think there's I think there's a a yes and sort of answer. There are things about mm-hmm. the experience of being traumatized um, that that are directly linked to the to the exposure. So, in general, what I have observed is that interpersonal type traumas tend to have what I call a deeper impact or imprint than I'm going to say non-interpersonal. So, I've also worked with people who've suffered, you know, motor vehicle accidents and um, disasters and things like that. So if the interpersonal nature of the exposure definitely seems to um, create a different, a qualitatively different experience because it undermines 
the sense of trust that is is fundamental to being human to our humanity um i often say that you know we can't experience trust if we don't have safety safety the roots of safety are in the body in our our experience of the body in the here and now and if we don't experience trust we can't be in relationship and relationship is the essence of why we're here so definitely there are things about interpersonal trauma in general and types of 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 interpersonal traumas there's also a way in which trauma is trauma, and I think that really has to do with the the biology and the physiology of it. The the human response to fear and terror um, is necessary. It's it's what enables us to survive these situations, and so I think there are certain things in terms of shifts in breathing patterns and shifts in heart rate and the and the way that might look in people's faces. You know, there are general faces of fear and um, People's, I would say people's movement repertoire definitely tends to change, and usually it looks something like a smaller or a more fragmented one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the layer of culture is really important because how we express any of those, you know, basic physiological or biological roots of who we are is very, very um, affected by our culture. And so that will also be another layer that affects what, um, you know, what being traumatized looks like. Um, both from different um, types of trauma, you know, whether it's torture mm-hmm. or domestic violence. A lot of it has to do with secrecy. You know, what I have found is the, is the human rights abuses, the interpersonal traumas that are shrouded in secrecy, which relates to shame, um, are often the ones that create the, a, a sense of what I call the body becomes the betrayer. And when our own body becomes the betrayer, that tends to be a very particular, I'm going to say, you know, clinical presentation or manifestation or presentation of what being traumatized looks like. It's the most difficult to work with. It's the most challenging, um, you know, and and I don't ever like to overgeneralize, but it often describes um, people who will, who are who begin to sh- pull away from life, um, mm-hmm. you know, because it's overwhelming to live in a body that is not only locked down in fear, but a body that feels like it's betraying us. And so you're describing this as a response to domestic violence, to torture, to war, to... Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think I think particularly... You know, to go back to your question, domestic violence, because people can develop, you know, a lot of shame around, there can be a lot of judgment. Political torture, because the nature of political torture is to shame, it's to, you know, it's not interrogation. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's, you know, it's it's not it's not an even enhanced interrogation. Torture is intended to undermine um, the threads of humanity. It's intended to send a message to communities, to families. It's done to exert power and control. So, um, and it intentionally silences both in the m- manner of torture, which actually will do things to a person so that they can't remember um, the body. You know, in, in the body also the physiological and biological shifts that occur, the hormonal shifts, especially during the exposure to trauma. Um, change our ability to remember and it's you know now well documented Mm -hmm. that traumatic memory is implicit it's encoded as sensation and sensory motor information and image and it's fragmented it's not chronological so those um you know that that definitely affects the way a person presents and the way that um 
they continue to move through the world. And it, but and I think, you know, some so all interpersonal traumas I think are challenging, and some are just particularly more when I think it has to do with when they involve either, as I said, political torture, which has a very specific intention, genocide. Um, terrorism, acts of terrorism, people who survive those, or domestic violence and ritual abuse where people are often, it's people people they love or people they know, um, and yes. child abuse, long-term child abuse, that adds a very particular layer, or, you know, the ritual sort of programmed types of abuses which change, you know, change the way a person functions at the level of the body. So, yeah, I don't, I'm yeah. not sure yeah. if I answered your question. That was Oh, you, you know, there's... <laughs> There are so many questions to be answered, and uh, and you are answering the ones that aren't even spoken. Um, so, you know, the show is about change, and so underlying our whole conversation is this idea of change and creating change and the possibility of, a, of adapting to change. Um, and in uh, in terms of the work that you're doing, it has very much to do with, with uh, restoring people restoring yeah. people back to themselves and to um, really, uh, you know, brings me to the question, you know, um, are we resilient? Can we can we come back? How do you bring people back? Um, yes, we are resilient. We, I think all human beings are, are born with an inherent resiliency. We also have inherent vulnerabilities. Um, I believe we're all born with an inherent resiliency. The way that I look at the experience of trauma is that it's an uninvited change. So mm-hmm. no matter what the context or the, you know, the, the, the situation, it's uninvited. Trauma by definition is too much, too fast, no transition time, not enough processing. And so we can consider it an uninvited change. And I'm really glad that you use the word restore because that's a word that I'm really um, – I'm very particular about it. And so in terms of, you know, coming back, so the change, the uninvited change that occurs has an impact on a person's life, and that will be usually why they seek change. They seek to change again. They seek to come back to some sense of equilibrium or balance or reconnection. And so they'll come to, you know, a therapist or come to me for some work. And I'm really clear that what... I'd never use the term trauma recovery. I cringe at that because um, so many people, there, there is always something that will not be recovered. The thing about traumatic experience mm-hmm. and especially interpersonal is the world will never be the same again. I will never be the same again. We will never be the same again. It's not possible. It's a life-changing event and it's a life-changing response. I also don't like, you know, trauma release. A lot of people talk about that. I think that's vague. I don't know. I think things can be released. Um, you know, the effect or the impact a memory has on us or the neurological, you know, the, the accumulated energy and fear. But but restoration to me is the word that aptly describes what what the what the next level of change that's that's possible is. And it's simply well it's not simple, but it's what I've learned is that no matter what a person comes for, um, and it often can be measured or described in terms of behavioral or mental health symptoms or, you know, difficulty in relationships or feeling alone, isolation, people, the the primary purpose, I think, of the work that I do is restoring a sense of belonging and meaning. I think the mm-hmm. large 
the large picture is where do I belong, my sense of how I relate to the world, how I stand on this earth, how I am grounded and connected, what gives me meaning, my relationships, that's what changes. So the work is about restoring enough connection, whether it's internal connection at the level of connecting the physical sensations to the memories, to the feeling of the memory, to the emotion of the memory, to the beliefs associated with the memory, internal connections and external connections. How do I get the courage to get up and go out the door? How do I manage two hours and four hours and six hours and maybe eight hours of my work day? How do I go back and ride a public bus again? If that's, you know, a lot of people who've come from war zones are scared to ride public transportation. Um, So reconnecting to the things that created a daily rhythm and a routine in somebody's life. Um, And, you know, all of those rhythmic activities, if you will, the internal, the external, I mean, connections, they're all... Um, they're all rooted in the body. They're all rooted in, you know, how we feel in our body, how we breathe, our how how we move. So, um, restoration and yeah, it's a it's a sense of restoring what we can. Um, we can't put some things back, but we can acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, often, there's a lot of grief and loss work involved in this work. Um, we may need to actually. I often talk about it in terms of increasing in awareness when we live in fear we're not aware and once we become aware of this is what I'm afraid of this is what triggers me this is what happened then there's a sense of shifting into ownership that's my emotion that's my sensation that's related to that terrible thing that happened grieving it acknowledging it honoring it divining it praying to it moving it and then shifting into a deeper processing of that experience and then fitting it into the larger life. Um, I often say that hopefully nobody's lived a life that is entirely made up of traumatic experiences. Lots mm-hmm. of people have a lot of them, um, but I've never met anybody who didn't have some segment of their life that had some beauty, some joy, some connection. So we place this, you know, the traumatic process or the traumatic memory, the experience put it in its right place in the timeline of an entire life. And that's that's also part of the restorative process. And sometimes it's many lives. It's intergenerational trauma. It's long histories of, you know, people who come from holoca- the Holocaust. Um, a lot of work has been done in that area. So it's, yeah, so it's like we restore we restore as much as we can to, re- to, to reconnect to a sense of meaning and belonging. Yeah, wow. I'm just so uh, I'm just so stunned at the beauty of it, really. Um, so I have to ask you, how is it that you have been drawn to do this work, and what allows you to be um, resilient in the constant face of it as you're helping others? Um, I. My resiliency has been a, has been an ongoing question because there have certainly been times where I've been exhausted or depleted and have no you know noticed changes in my own life patterns and rhythms and movements and relationships um and generally speaking i do I do have a sense that this is the work that i that I'm here to do i I'm somebody who had i'm very clear about having been wanted in the world, I I had a really happy childhood. 
And I say that, you know, very seriously, that I think knowing um, the level of safety that I had growing up, knowing the level of love and of being wanted. And, there, you know, there are many people who don't have that experience who who it's another reason that people are drawn to this work and have very particular, ta- you know, I would say knowing and experiences that they bring to it. For me, I feel that that has given me a foundation of strength and of belonging. And I've had a series of experiences. When I was 16, I was in a horrific car accident that, um, you know, where it was, I was proclaimed as, you know, as having almost been killed, which I, I'm not really sure what almost being hmm. killed is, but yeah, I did right. have a, an out-of-body experience. I did have that sense of having to come back into my body. Um, I've suffered considerable chronic pain since. And my mother reports... Uh, she she even did some research and said she thought I might have had a, a soul transfer. You know, she said you did this complete 180 in your personality. And I've done a lot of work on what happened, and I consider that my having been broken wide open. I grew up in a really mainstream part of Connecticut. Um, Stepford Wives is, came out of the area that I lived in where I when I was younger, and <laughs> it was just a very it never totally made sense to me. And this experience of, of almost being killed and the way that I was shunned by some people because of the accident, the, all of it. So that was my being broken wide open. And then I started traveling. And in the course of my travels, I was exposed to civil conflict in Guatemala. I woke up in the middle of the night in Nepal and heard some horrible screams and went and actually saw somebody being tortured and abused. So I've mm-hmm. exposures that you know it's it's the 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 eyes wide open you know can't look away anymore can't turn back and so getting drawn into I would say and I've also always been an activist and my parents report that that's been true since I was very young so I think the combination of activism and a sense of justice and dance having been my um, my sanctuary my whole life since my dad said I was born dancing and fighting and (laughs) dance has always been my sanctuary and movement and the journey coming into my body after the accident and the pain that I experienced it's just been a a convergence of different experiences and pursuing different trainings and educations and um, having been exposed to some pretty horrific realities in, in the world and wanting to do something about them and recognizing at the same time that I'm extraordinarily limited in what I can do and, you know, that it really is about supporting that restorative shift, that change in, in individual interactions or, or, or group interactions, you know, people to people. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you, you had this awakening and, you know, where it's led you and, how it's led you to me and, um, you know, all of what you are contributing to the world. Like you say, you know, person by person and um, body to body and, and, um, and really contributing this, this view, you know, this view of trauma and this view of resilience and being a champion for resilience in a world that sometimes feels rather hopeless and in, and in circumstances yeah. that can feel very hopeless. And um, I'm just so grateful. Uh, you know, our time is, is uh, running out here. 
we've you've just been so brilliant and so articulate and so clear in in um in talking about all this we could we could continue talking for so much longer but before we finish i just want people to be able to know how to find you how to get in touch with you how to uh, contribute to supporting the work that you're doing so can you let us know what the best way is Sure. I um I have a website. I think I think if people Google Amber Gray G R A Y it comes up but it's www.restorativeresources.net mm-hmm. and that's um that's my website and then I also have a nonprofit trauma resources um international and that's linked to the restorative resources website and um yeah, there's some information about that there. And there will actually be, I'm about to make some big shifts. It's been a little bit quiet. I've been working on a particular contract for the past um, year. So I'm going to be doing some reviving of both websites and, and starting some actually new programs in Haiti and in the Middle East through my nonprofit coming up in the next probably three or four months. So, yeah, th- those are probably the best ways. And my email information is on there and resources are on there some of the things I've written. Great. Well, I would love for people to be able to uh, to go to your uh, website and to contribute to your work. It's incredible what you do and, uh, like I said, how tireless you are in, um, in where you travel and who you touch. Thank you. So, yeah, Amber, thank you so much. Um, I've enjoyed talking with you very much, and I just wish you continued uh, continued abundance in what you do. Thank you, Sharon. It's great to talk to you. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to passingfornormal.com. That's passing, numeral four, normal.com. Her novel, Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMOs you'll ever read, is available in paperback, Kindle, and now as an audiobook wherever good books are sold and at DonnieandUrsula.com. So go out and do something brave today. M. Earth and I thank you. <laughs>